Chapter 8. The Comparison Game Who Made Sex? Every summer, our church does a weekly youth ministry at two inner-city parks in town. Most of the kids and teens who come aren't Christians, and have had very little exposure to biblical concepts. We're teaching the teens about sex one week, and show them in Scripture how God created sex. I remember a particular 15-year-old who flat-out didn't believe us. He was convinced the devil had made sex. He associated the devil with sex because it felt good, and he knew it was, quote, against the rules. The thing he couldn't get his mind wrapped around was that, in his view, a stuffy, rule-making, dull God would have anything to do with something that felt so good. It is incredibly important for us to understand that sex is God's invention, not Satan's. You need to understand that the sexual urges you have are, on some level, God's handiwork. Satan wants us to think that the entire conversation about sex is on his home turf. He wants us to think it's all about body parts and impulse. We can end up feeling like God simply wants us to behave and follow his rules, that he wants us to live out mundane sex lives with our one spouse. Meanwhile, we look across the lawn at Satan's playground and wish we could have some of the fun our lucky, non-Christian friends are having. Is my own lawn really all there is? We will always be trapped and frustrated when we approach sex on Satan's terms. When our efforts for purity are on his turf, we are trying to take something broken and bend and morph it into something that follows God's design. True freedom is found only when we start at the source and build from there. How do you know to put gas and oil in your car to make it go? The creator of the car wrote a manual to tell you how to fuel and operate the vehicle. The manual tells you exactly the type of gas and oil to put in, as well as where and how often. When you follow the creator's design, the car runs well. But what happens if you decide to take matters into your own hands? What if you decide to ignore the creator and put some random substance into your car's engine? How about lemonade or coffee or kerosene? These are sure bets for disaster. As more and more people look at their sex lives and see disaster, one must wonder if the creator of sex can finally get an audience with us so we can learn what the design for sex is and isn't. After making the incredible creations of light, plants, and animals, Genesis tells us six times God saw what he had made and called it, quote, good. Yet, Genesis 1.31 tells us that after God finished his final day of creation, he pronounced what he had made very good. What caused God's rating of his own creation to improve from good to very good? Genesis 1, 27-28a tells us, quote, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Quote, be fruitful and increase in number, unquote, is a direct reference to sex and all that goes along with it. Creation was good. Then God created man and woman and sex, and creation became very good. God created sex and wrote the recipe book for it. 
Just as you can use or ignore your car's manual, you have the choice of listening to the designer or doing it your own way. Apples and oranges. Before we look at God's recipe for sex, it's important we understand that we are not comparing God's way to have an orgasm to Satan's, as if we are rating which is better and making decisions from that basis. I say this because it's often how sexual purity strategies are taught to Christians. Quote, save your sex until marriage, because then you'll have no regrets and the sex will be better, unquote. In fact, you should view any Christian command skeptically that follows up with the lure, quote, and then the sex will be better, unquote. The problem we typically run into when talking about God's design versus the world's is that we try to compare apples to apples, as if God's design for sex and Satan's were two versions of the same substance, as if God's sex apple tastes one way and Satan's tastes a different way, we can then analyze and compare the two tastes and go with the one that tastes the best. At the end of the day, though, you're still eating an apple. Chapter 7 showed how this apple-to-apple game plays out when we shift our appetite from objectification of all women to consuming only our wives. In both situations, we're still objectifying. We are still looking at women as food to be consumed for our gratification which is Satan's design through and through. The idea that we should starve ourselves from the sex buffet and only, quote, consume our wives will never bring true freedom because we are still buying into Satan's design for what sex is, a method of consumption, not God's. As we approach God's recipe for sex, we see his design and Satan's design are completely different in substance. If Satan's design for sex is like taking a bite from an apple, God's design is more like owning the entire apple orchard. While there is a thread of similarity, taking a bite from a single apple and operating an entire orchard are two completely different experiences. Which physical experience will be more of a rush? The one with the blazing hot woman from the bar who's all over you, or the one with your wife of 20 years. Worded that way, it's really no contest. Telling ourselves or being taught that married sex will be more of a rush is an unnecessary charade that will eventually cave in on itself. When we compare the two experiences in this way, we end up feeling like the person longing for the playground across the street while they're stuck in their room doing math homework. We begrudgingly obey God's commands to be faithful to our seemingly mundane wife, all the while yearning to have what our non-Christian friends are enjoying on Satan's sex playground. When we think sex is about eating apples, about objectifying and about consumption, it's only natural we'd feel this way. We are slaving away on our apple orchard, tilling soil, organizing rows, planting seeds, fertilizing, watering, weeding, straining, and sweating. We then must figure out how to organize the harvest in a sustainable and profitable way, efficiently market and distribute all the apples, eradicate the disease that affected a quarter of the crop, then prepare for the next planting season and do it all over again. Meanwhile, our non-Christian friends are just running around the orchard like children, picking random apples from trees, 
taking gleeful bites out of them, then tossing them aside so they can grab another apple from another tree. No work, no hassle, all fun. We can feel like we made the wrong choice when we compare the immediate benefits of Satan's sex to God's. But when we take a moment to reflect on the big picture, it doesn't take long to realize where true wisdom lies. Whether it's from Proverbs 5 or from Aesop's classic fable, The Grasshopper and the Ant, we can see that instant gratification has major shortcomings and that investing in the big picture is where we will find major benefit. The problem with temptation is that we typically compare the immediate benefits of Satan's way with the immediate benefits of God's way. With this formula, Satan's way is going to win out every time. It's almost comical sometimes. The way we try to teach teenagers about saving sex for marriage, we tell them they can get STDs or get pregnant, though they know if they use condoms, this is unlikely to happen. Their hormones are raging, and we tell them, quote, the feeling of sex will be better when you and your spouse are virgins on your honeymoon night, unquote. The reason I find this almost comical is because these types of statements all compare God's sex to Satan's, using Satan's metric system of sensual gratification. Quote, God's sex feels better. Believe us, unquote, we say. No kid or adult is going to believe that because in the short term, it is seldom true. Any man would love to be worshipped by a new pretty thing. While for good reason, no wife of 20 years is going to worship her husband. We neglect to acknowledge what Proverbs 5 isn't bashful about at all. That extramarital sex feels really good. Proverbs 5.3 describes this well. Quote, For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Unquote. The author of this proverb points out there is intense pleasure to be had with an adulterous woman. Honey was the delicacy of the ancient world. Before there were chocolate brownies or ice cream, there was honey, and it was a much sought-after delight. The author's vivid depiction of a woman's lips dripping with such a delicacy was meant to make the reader's heart race. We miss this truth when trying to teach others or convince ourselves that sexual purity is even better, and it causes our words to fall on deaf ears. While Satan wants the discussion to end with the delicious honey, the proverb continues in verse 4, quote, But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword, unquote. How quickly the imagery changes. One minute you are savoring the sweet taste of honey and the smooth feeling of oil. The next you are puking up stomach bile and a double-edged sword is ripping through your body. The writer of the proverb concludes the thought in verse 5, quote, Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. Unquote. Not only has the adulterous woman left you in intense pain, she is slowly dragging you to your death, a concept the rest of Proverbs 5 describes with incredible clarity. This path to the grave is familiar to addicts, as it feels as if the only thing that will solve the wound of the sword is more honey and oil. The conversation about sex must zoom out 
and to provide a view that encompasses much more than just the act itself. It must, because the repercussions are bigger than the act itself, and because God's original design was always meant to be greater. The benefits of an orchard will always differ from the benefits of a bite of an apple. Sex was never meant to be an experience in and of itself, something God's recipe will make clear as we lay out its ingredients. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Our culture tells us sex is purely for physical pleasure, with no strings attached. You could have a one-night stand with a total stranger or date someone simply for the physical pleasure you gain from it. You can turn on the television to find plot after plot centered on casual sex. Or you can watch the most recent action or comedy movie and be flooded with sexualized bodies. Eye candy viewers have come to demand. With these trends, it shouldn't be surprising that 34% of millennial singles say they have had sex with another person before they have had a first date with that person. A college student from my church was a resident assistant in a freshman dorm at Michigan State University. When he was showing me his dorm room, I was startled to see a sizable box of condoms attached to the outside of his door with a note on it that said, quote, when these are gone, you can get more at the nurse's office, unquote. He said all RAs were supplied with these and required to display them outside their doors. This was a far cry from what I was accustomed to at Cornerstone University, the Christian college I attended. What does this box of condoms communicate to a bunch of 18-year-olds away from home for the first time? The same thing TV shows and movies communicate, a message most people now have embedded deep into their worldview. Sex is like food. When you're hungry, eat. And when you're in the mood for sex, have sex. The body is meant for pleasure. It feels good, so do it. There are no strings attached. Take a bite from an apple, throw it to the side, grab another apple. Objectify. Consume. It's all about you. Ironically, this worldview is identical to the culture Paul was addressing nearly 2,000 years ago when he penned a book of the Bible to believers living in Corinth, Greece. In the context of sex, the saying of the day was, quote, everything is permissible for me, unquote. 1 Corinthians 6.12. Essentially, quote, I'm a free adult and I can do whatever I want sexually, unquote. The same message communicated to those Michigan State freshmen. Some things just haven't changed. Another Corinthian saying in regard to sex was, quote, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, unquote. 1 Corinthians 6.13. God created the stomach for what? Food. So take in food, because it feels good. Then move on, no strings attached. God created the sexual organs for what? Sex. So use them for sex, because it feels good. Then move on, no strings attached. The Bible's teachings on sex are just as relevant today as they were the day they were written. Our Creator's design for sex is not about consuming someone else for pleasure. It never has been and it never will be. Sex unifies two people into a lifetime one flesh union, marriage, where vulnerability and trust prevail in all aspects of life. 
taking sex out of this context and experiencing it in isolation from the rest of this union is a clear contradiction to God's design. Like pouring lemonade into a car's gas tank, it causes disaster. No wonder our sex lives, our struggles with purity, and our culture are in such a mess. There simply is no comparison between God's full design for sex and Satan's empty perversion of it.